The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! I'm, I'm blinded by the light. You're not going to want to skateboard while you're blind. Oh, is that what we're doing? I'm, go- I'm going as best as I can. Come on. Oh, James, the freedom. Can you smell it? Can you feel it on your face? It's radical, man. We, Freedom's radical. We're on We're on fall break. Uh, yeah, I, yeah I, I'm going to go right to the 7-Eleven. Get me... Uh, Ice cold, icy, and uh, and loiter for a while. Yeah. Uh, skate skateboard for a little while and uh, play some video games and. Yeah, let's uh, James. Let's mercifully put this skit to death. <laughs> um, welcome to the Third Men Podcast. I'm your co-host Paul Kaminsky. I'm your other co-host, James Kaminsky. And we are on fall break, so look, listeners, let us level with you, okay? We just did 52 weeks worth of material, and boy, are our arms tired. Yeah, it's we've been waving them constantly <laughs> uh, at Third Man Records, trying to get them to notice us, and, well, they still haven't, so we're putting them down for a while. Yeah, we're going to do some Greatest Hits episodes here. Don't worry, we'll be back with new content. We're going to do a Greatest Hits trilogy this week, James, we're going to do a best of interview show. So 
you know, for anybody who just joined the podcast who wants to get caught up super quick, this will be a really helpful jumping on point. And uh, if we hadn't mentioned it already, we're a Jack White history podcast and uh, we go through Jack White movies and music and all sorts of stuff. And uh, oftentimes we interview people associated with Third Man Records. Yeah, we've had the wonderful opportunity to interview some amazingly talented guests, artists, musicians, people who are in the Jack White orbit who we never thought we'd be able to look at, let alone talk to. Yeah, so we're going to look at them, we're going to talk to them, and you guys are going to get the best of the best as they uh, connect to Third Man Records. We value all of our third men, women, people, bands, etc. that join us on the show. We love you all to death. I think this episode we're going to be rounding up some of the direct Third Man related people that we've had the pleasure of interviewing over this past year or so. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we have some guests uh don't don't worry, we do have guests lined up for this coming year that we're very excited about and you'll find out about it in due time. But yes. uh, until then, we can give you a little bit of what we have done in the yeah. past. So this, these aren't going to be the regular episodes, but hey, enjoy this. And next week, we're going to also do something pretty fun with a new Best Of episode. So yeah, for those of you regular listeners who have heard all of this before, hey, listen to it again. You know, we're sorry, but we're, <laughs> we're also like super tired. And this is, uh, this is our fall break. We're out here sunning ourselves in the pumpkin patch. It's sincere. Very sincere. We're sipping, I don't know actually what's in pumpkin spice. I have a feeling it's, I don't know, GMOs or chemtrails or something, but we're sipping that and we're having it's a great- It's mostly loose change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so without further ado, we hope you enjoy this best of episode and let's, let's go for it, James, shall we? Hey, let's look back at how we talked to some people. Yeah. <laughs> Catch you next week. Bye. (laughs) No. (laughs) Welcome to our third man for this week, Dominic Davis. Dominic, we are... I can't even... I can't even believe I just said those words. Dominic, we're thrilled to have you on the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'm getting off the tour and heading home Father's Day. Or not really home, heading to Michigan Father's Day. Mm -hmm. Nice. And uh, feeling pretty good. Nice. We were talking a little bit about Jack on stage. Was he like that early on and when you were playing with him when you guys were kids? Was he into that kind of spontaneous thing or was it, or is that something that evolved over time? Uh, I, we didn't perform that much. We recorded more than anything when yeah. we were teenagers. Oh, okay. Uh, and when we, did, when we did perform, a lot of times he was playing drums. Right. But I think right. that came with the stripes when you saw it. You know what I mean? Because if you go anywhere, since there was only two of them, and he would do that all the time. Mm. Right. And when he called, when Blunderbuss was sort of coming together and he was trying to figure out what he's going to do for a band and everything, he called me and, and said that he wanted that freedom. He was like with the Raconteurs, he couldn't just go from song to song to song. There's two singers, you know. Right. Got to have a little bit of a plan. They're hopping on instruments. Right. But he said he wanted, he, he was asking like, do you think we can do this? Like, can I just be who I am and we'll just go everywhere with him? And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but we rehearsed like crazy. Yeah. So, and the rehearsals were sort of like shows where he would just pick up a guitar and just start playing a song. You know, not really tell us what we're going to work on. So, <laughs> that seems that, stressful. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, we, we got a song list. Okay. Like songs okay. to learn. And a, a lot of them. Maybe like 80 of them. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, heard that you guys were 
consolidated into two separate groups to practice a lot of these. Well, we had to because there's so much material. You mean with the girls and guys? Yeah, yeah during the Blunderbuss tour. Yeah, well, we kind of had to because otherwise it was going to take twice as long. You know what yeah, I mean? Right. And he also wanted it to be two different things, like playing things two different ways. So a lot of times it was like, uh, you know, between third man and his studio we were set up in two different places and he would go back and forth like four times because we would have to we would really have to work on stuff without him just to try to figure a lot of this out is it true that you guys were across town or in completely separate buildings right and he would have to shuttle himself back and forth to each yeah but i mean that's just logistics like we couldn't really be in the same place because it's so loud right and we also (laughs) We wouldn't really rent a rehearsal spot because he's got spots for us to rehearse at, you know? Gotcha. Right. Right. Yeah, but it was kind of cool that we didn't hadn't seen each other until we started playing shows. Yeah. yeah. So I think I, I watched all of the Peacock shows, I think. I mean, there might have been one or two that I wasn't at. You know, like sometimes the tour would end and they would be going to L.A. And I knew I wasn't playing because it was like the last show of the tour. I, I mean, I think I saw all but just a couple. Wow. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, we saw a bunch of shows on that tour with both bands, and uh, all of them were completely energetic, particularly in the Blunderbuss tour, but also on the Lazaretto tour. They were remarkable shows, and James and I had only seen the White Stripes one time before they split up, but it was my impression that there was an attempt to have a band sort of be in a place of where, like, say, Meg was going to be in the Stripes, so Jack could sort of do what he was doing in the stripes but with a full band instead of just Meg kind of thing is is there any truth to that or do you think any of that was about recapturing the spontaneity of the white stripes in that way yeah no certainly especially if we're going to do that material mm-hmm. and like and that task is heavy because you know like that band is so perfect to me yeah certain songs it's easy to put a bass line under because Jack's kind of oh, just doubling a riff on like it's up or something that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, what did we do? There were a couple songs that were really hard, surprisingly. Oh, God, I'm not going to think of what it was. But, you know, it's, those songs are so iconic. It, it was really kind of wild to try to replicate that. Right. Yeah, and to add a bass to it, too, where uh, that part didn't exist. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And we needed all the instrumentation to do all the solo stuff that we were going to do because mm-hmm. it was so sort of orchestral, like the song Blunderbuss, you know. Like, you need a piano, you need an upright bass, you know, you need the steel. But then figuring out where those things fit in all the other material, that took a while. Right. We're just kind of learning how to flow, you know, how how he's going to... He usually tells the one person that needs to know what song we're doing. Mm-hmm. Or just launches into it if nobody needs to know or, you know. 
But it was really confusing. A lot of times, you know, something he would play, let's say, like, uh, Apple Blossom. He played that on the piano a lot. But sometimes he played on the guitar. <laughs> but, so then you, you, you know, he starts it and you, you have a moment as a band member. You're thinking, do I know this song? <laughs> you know, because it could be a song we've never done before. Yeah. You yeah. always had that, that moment where it's like, um, is this? And then, you know, halfway through, sometimes like, oh, okay. I know, I know what we're doing now. It really keeps you on your toes. Well, especially as it was giant festival spots. That is so daring. Because bands now, uh, computers sort of, you know, if from a production standpoint, computers sort of dominate things. Mm-hmm. So a lot of bands are playing the, playing the track. So, like, people aren't actually playing on stage. Uh, and a drum, drummer will have, like, a click in his ear, or he can hear, like, you know, sometimes it's just atmosphere, but some bands it's, like, straight up background vocals, like, recordings of background vocals you're playing to. Mm-hmm. Right. But now a lot of bands, that computer syncs everything. The lights, you know, and a lot of times you can change the pedals on the guitar, effects on guitars and stuff, all in the box, you know? Mm-hmm. So when we're going out, we were kind of one of the few bands that didn't do that. And you've got to kind of compete with that, you know? Like, like uh, you could make a kick drum sound great if you put a trigger on it and you can load the sample of the bass drum you got, sound you got on the album. Yeah. <laughs> we just didn't want to open that door, you know what I mean? Well, yeah. It seems the desire wouldn't be there on Jack's part, not to mention the rest of the group. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I think a lot of bands do, I mean, a whole lot of bands do that. We played the Corona Festival in Mexico and lightning had struck close to the site. And so they had to shut everything down. Uh-huh. And then, you know, like power, whatever, some sort of reason that they, they couldn't, they powered everything down. And then we were behind a bunch of bands, like they, we got behind schedule. And they power, once they got the okay to power everything up, we were like the only band that could just go out there and play <laughs> without rebooting and like you know, figuring out where the computers are all at. And right. That, that that was an eye opener. Uh, I feel like worst case, you guys could just be like, "This is an acoustic show now," <laughs> and you could still yeah. get out there and do it. <laughs> James and I both work in art, and sometimes I think about, "Hey, if all these computers just got fried one day, we wouldn't have any art to put out because it's all done on computer." So it's so funny you say that because it, yeah, you guys were the ultimate example of how it still can be done the way it used to be and still sound good. You know? Yeah. Oh. Thing, though. I mean, when you have like a, what's called a square wave, which is sort of like uh, synthesizers or like, uh, you know, that, that like massive bass you're hearing at all this EDM stuff you hear, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you're trying to compete with that sonically at some point, you got to do something, you know what I mean? Yeah. But we just, we just never did. Right. So Dominic, with all that spontaneity in the mix there, did you find Jack leaning on you as somebody he could rely on since he knew you for so long? Was there did he lean on your musical rapport at all, do you think? Uh, I don't know if he did intentionally, but he might launch into like a venture song or a Dick Dale song that we learned in high school <laughs> and suddenly I was like, Oh wow, I still remember this song. <laughs> different things yeah yeah so, um, I mean, he's always played two drums mm-hmm. 
So him and Daru, like that that chemistry there is amazing. Him and Carla was really special. You know? Yeah, every member of that group was so strong in his or her own right. In both groups, really, but you know, we're talking about the Buzzards, Peacocks, and the the sort of combined group. Um, everyone had an awesome personality, and all the different personalities shined through when we were seeing the show, even without you know really knowing everybody as well as we knew Jack. So it, you know, it's been really cool seeing where the trajectories of all those different artists have been leading. Um, yeah, especially now with Lily May, like a few a few people having their you know get, getting their own leg. You know? Yeah. So are we gonna get yeah. a, are we gonna get a Dominic Davis solo release? Are we? I know you, you sing. I've heard you harmonize with Rachel. You sound great. What are we What are we doing here? Come on. What are we doing? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it comes comes down to intent again. You know, why would I? If I had a reason to make one or like a batch of songs or something, I think yeah. I would. But what I've been doing lately lately is producing a lot. Oh, that's cool. So they're trying to. Yes, I produced that Willie Nelson record for oh, Third wow. Man. Right. Oh, wow. that, that was his birthday thing. And then uh, there's been a couple other things here and there. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, you've been uh-huh. doing like arranging, right? Like doing orchestral arrangement or something? Yeah, like- kind of, yeah. I mean, I've, I've produced a punk rock record for a friend of mine. I'm just trying to, at this point, just sort of helping friends. Mm-hmm who've been wanting to make records or who I've seen, I know they have a bunch of songs, just help them finish those records. You right, know? right. Speaking of arranging and, and orchestral stuff, we were talking about you putting bass lines and stuff on White Stripes songs. Can you tell us a little bit about City Lights, the sort of lost White Stripes song, I guess you could call it, that uh, you and Jack wound up polishing off last year and putting out in conjunction with the Acoustic Recordings release. How did that come about, and was it daunting to add to the White Stripes legacy, or did it feel more natural? Well, I mean, it's definitely heavy because I've known both Jack and Nick for so long. That wasn't mm-hmm. lost on me. He called me real last minute, and that's the way it is, almost <laughs> always. And we, I, I knew he was making an acoustic record, and they were already starting to mix a lot of that stuff. And I knew that there, you know, there's a lot of recording, and he works so fast. I mean, I would say between Lazaretto and Blunderbuss, there might be 20 to 30 that didn't oh, wow. make the record. Oh, wow. And even in the case of the song Lazaretto, that was sort of like a, I don't want to say a throwaway, but it was just sort of an experiment that didn't have any lyrics. Huh. <laughs> like, I, I didn't think it was going to be... You know, it didn't have lyrics for maybe two years. What? We could, well, or maybe a year and a half. Because we recorded it during Blunderbuss tour. Like, we were just happened to be rehearsing or something, and we all, we, you know, he scheduled a session. They did just one drink. We did Lazaretto and Three Women. Three Women was more finished, uh-huh. you know, like you could tell that was, that was happening. Right. And so City Lights, he called me and was like, hey, can you come and play on this tune today? Uh, and I went in there, and it's pretty crooked, you know? And it's beautiful. Like, it, re- it reminded me of sort of a George Harrison, like the first time yeah. I heard it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, and it just wasn't, it was kind of falling apart in places. It just needed a little bit of polishing. And so we did a bunch of different things. I almost doubled all of the guitar, like all those lines. And then we sort of simplified it down to where I would just pedal. Mm-hmm. And then I would play, you know. And it was crazy playing that song. We only played it once on Our Young Companion, but it's 
not an easy song. And I had a shaker taped to my leg. Meg's shaker. Wow. But it's gorgeous. Thank you. Your bass playing is so beautiful. That song, I think when I first heard it, I was just, it almost brought a tear to my eye. It was so beautiful. I, I see the George Harrison thing you're talking about. It sounds like something off All Things Must Pass or something, but. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the time it was written in, I think it was from the Get Behind Me Satan era, and that's my favorite Jack album. Yeah, I, I, it was cool to hear more from that, and I, I God, I hope there's more. I hope there's more songs kicking around. You know, I, I don't you know, want to pry. Think about this: he's, he's recorded every single show he's ever done yeah. from the very beginning. Right. Like I think even the coffee house shows, just because we had portable, we had a real, real, you know. Yeah. And so, like that alone is like there's so much out there. Yeah. So the shaker on your leg, did you have a very tiny microphone stand uh, hooked up? Uh, no, no. <laughs> Shakers are pretty loud. So okay. I just, uh, it was like we, we taped the Sharpie cap to it. So, and then the clip on the Sharpie cap like, flipped onto my shoe. Okay. That's how that worked. <laughs> Thank you, Josh, Josh Smith, saving the day. And one thing that was cool was all of the quieter songs. So, like, Entitlement and... Uh, uh, alone in My Home and... Uh... Yeah, Alone in My Home. And those were, like... Jack said, he, the band wasn't in town. That's why Blackwell plays drums. Mm. <laughs> but he would say, "Hey, we're just gonna make some demo." And so we go to the, go to the studio and like, not, you know, things aren't really set up or checked. And he's like, "No, it's just gonna be demos. Like, let's just do it real fast." <laughs> you know. And so and so, I think we got. You know, normally you play for a while and get sound dialed in. And I think we probably played like fifty minutes or something like that. And they want to be on the record, you know. <laughs> that's, that's that's kind of him in a nutshell, a little bit. Yeah, it's know? so funny. He did something similar with Margot. I know where he had her play a demo, and then he's like, "I was in the other room the whole time," and that's we're putting that out. <laughs> awesome, and she's really special. I'm really glad that people are taking to her so well. She, oh. she played on Prayer and Companion with us, and she's just she's a sweetheart, and she's really great at what she does. And she just people connect with her like when you're on stage with her you're watching people connect yeah. you know it's really it's really something special yeah i had the privilege yeah, of seeing her at the troubadour last year and i was absolutely enthralled she has so much stage presence and she makes a personal connection with the audience as well as the band and she looks like she's having fun when she smiles up there everyone smiles along with her because it, it's this sort of unspoken hey we're having a great time in her face that just lights up the room yeah yeah it's been great it's been great too because those releases are just their marriage mm-hmm. you know right. most of right. jack's albums are paired with a a major right. label right. 
and it's been really great to see like it's doable now you know to briefly get back to the lazaretto album you guys actually went all the way to france to play a couple of songs at the chateau de fontainebleau <laughs> yeah was that, like? was that as last minute as some of these demos did he say come to france with me <laughs> <laughs> no we, we were we were already on tour there okay. and we that, that was a crazy tour i think we did something like 12 no 14 shows in 12 days or something Whoa. like that Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we crazy. we also did that crazy Lazaretto. I don't know if you heard about. I can't remember what they called it now, but basically, like they did this fan club kind of thing where people, you know, they're saying, "Are you infected?" Oh, the hospital oh, yeah. yeah. stuff. Yeah. into the, yeah. but that was on that same tour. Viscovo, yeah, yeah, exactly. Viscovo with like this sort of you know art troupe, a performance art troupe kind of. Mm-hmm. So that was a little bit last minute, and we were we did two nights in Paris. I think at the Olympia, and we, and, you know, that was a few hours out. But it was so gorgeous there um, that it worked out well. You know, we, it's funny, we play really loud rock music on stage. <laughs> mm-hmm. But especially in the States when we have buses and we can bring other instruments, it's like a string band, you know, like the, the acoustic band. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, right. that, that's kind of what we're doing on the bus all the time. Yeah, it's funny, Fat always says, um, he's got a tour quote, he always says, because touring can be really crazy. Like, I, this, this tour I'm on, we just slept like six hours the last three days. Wow. But, uh, and Vance always says, like, if it's just really bad, you know, like something bad going down, he says, you know, you, you can't put a price on this lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then we're at that chateau and it's gorgeous and he says, you can't put a price on this lifestyle. Wow. <laughs> so he uses it in like, the best instances and the worst instances <laughs> of touring. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> We'd like to welcome our third man for this week, Fats Kaplan. Fats, we are so, so happy to have you on the show. I, uh, I'm like uh, verklempt. I'm verklempt over here, Fats. We're so happy to have you on the show. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be on the show. Thank you so much for being on. As we were saying earlier, especially for being the 4th of July, which is the day we're recording. So uh, thank you for taking the time. Uh, we, we greatly appreciate it. And uh, we're both a little starstruck. So. So that's, no, well, it's, no, it's perfect timing, actually. It's a perfect uh, morning here. And so it's all fine. Speaking of local cool spots, let, let's talk a little bit about Jack being down there, Third Man Records. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think... And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your first recording session for Third Man was the Becky and John Blue Series? No, the first oh, thing I did was with uh, First Aid Kit. Oh, wow. So how did you first get into that orbit? How did you first get introduced to Jack? How did that all come together? I got a call from Lalo. The tour manager. Yeah, yeah tour manager. And he was to do some a few shows and do some European shows with Karen Elson, mm-hmm. who Jack was married to at that time, because he was working with both. And so they looked me up, and they needed to look like somebody could play fiddle and steel was one of the things. And so I went and had, uh, got together with her, had a rehearsal. Then I think I did a show or something. We were going to do something in Europe, and every so- we set up to rehearse at Third Man, but I had not met Jack. And then, you know, Jack comes walking in to, you know, listens to the band, says, okay, you know, this, that, meets everybody, and that's where I met him. So we went to Europe and uh, with, with Karen, did some shows, and, and uh, that's where Josh Smith, who's like now, who's the 
He's the main engineer now at, at Surgeon for years. Josh was on it. And Olivia Jean was in the band. Huh. And Olivia was, Jack was helping put together a band and got Olivia, who he had met, to be in the band. And she was 19 years old and had never been the bass player in the band. But he handed her a bass and said, you're going to be the bass player. (laughs) She's pretty adaptable, it seems, uh, from her musical background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then that's where, and then, you know, and a few other folks, and that's where I met. So when I came back, came back and I got a call as is real typical like on day of they just uh, Josh called me up and said hey uh, Jack would like you to come in and play steel on this you know these girls from uh, from Sweden right. so I said um, okay <laughs> and uh, I came in and actually the first time I came in and I did that Then I got called for another one. Then I got called for another and just started getting, and then I was just in the orbit and just doing a lot of stuff and started piecing together. Also realizing the stuff we were doing was like being pieced together for the, for, you know, the first Jack White solo record. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were chatting with Dominic. He was telling us that a lot of this is uh, at a moment's notice where Jack will call you and say, can you come in today? And you just kind of have to say like, okay. Uh, and then when you do it, after he, he says it's just going to be a demo, it'll end up being, you know, the actual song. So he seems to have a reputation yeah. for doing that kind of drop of a hat kind of deal like uh, like he did with First Aid Kit. Oh, yeah. He's just, this is the way he operates. I mean, it's not, it's just when he's really, um, you know, firing all pistons, he'll just do that. Go like, hey, let's go do it. Hey, just call him up. You know, <laughs> and I only missed one blue, I only missed one blue series that I got called for. And I was with Christy Rose. We were headed to Ohio to do some shows in Ohio. And I, I was hours and hours out of, you know. And Josh, it was Josh, called me up. He goes, hey, Brad, you want to come in and do a, a, a blues series? Jack liked to come in. I said, oh, sorry, Josh, man, I'd love to, but uh, I'm on my way to Ohio, you know. He said, oh, okay. And I said, sorry, and he goes, who is it? And he goes, Tom Jones. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, okay. man. There, was another one, there was another one where I was going to, be, uh, to see some family on my wife's side, which is in North Alabama. We were going down, and we had driven about maybe, not quite an hour, but, but heading down, you know, leaving Nashville. Josh calls me up, and he goes, uh, hey, dude, we're doing a session here at like 2 o'clock. Can you be here? And I go, well... I said, I'm driving down to Alabama. And he go, and I go, and he goes, who is it? He goes, Beck. Oh, oh, man. I tr- turned the car around. No way. <laughs> That's so I turned crazy. the car around, headed back, went right to the studio, met Beck, and then from that, I got, he was doing his own record, so he, he said, well, why don't you come in the studio? 
the next day, I came into the studio, worked all day with him there. Then he said, could you put together a rhythm section and we'll go over to Oceanway Studio and do some more recording. And I said, sure. And I called up two guys right now and we went in the studio. So, and eventually, so through all of that, I did make it onto one cut on the album, which wow. became album of the year. Yeah, was that morning phase? That's the one where I was looking, I'm looking at the album and I'm finally going like, wait, and I'm reading it down and going, I don't know, not on that one, that. And then finally I go, oh, here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I tell you, and I go, it goes banjo. And I go, banjo? I play banjo? <laughs> 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 Man, that is crazy. Was Christy Rose in the car with you that time, too? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, she just goes, turn the car around. Okay, that's a very accepting <laughs> wife. Uh, but, he, you know, it's just the way that, you know, that it would roll and, and stuff like that. But it was always great. I loved doing the Blue Series. Yeah, sure. You know, from working with Jack and particularly certain ones, which, you know, probably, probably my favorite was Insane Clown Posse, actually. Yeah, you have this style of music you played in for a very long time, and then Third Man happens, and suddenly you're with Insane Clown Posse and, 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 and others, and so I wonder, what, did that strike you as gimmicky to you, or did it just strike you as sort of another way of looking at world music, you know, another way of just looking at different types of things? How, how did that strike you, that diversity? No, I mean, I... I didn't strike it, it that's very doesn't strike me as being I mean there is a thread that kind of goes through it like the whole thing of, of Jack doing insane clown posse and because they had Detroit connections and right. and you know because he got a lot of flack for doing it but I'm going but there's, they were very cool yeah. they were very cool I mean normally you don't have a lot of times like an idea or ideas about how to do something or thoughts or you can bounce it off when that one he was like real specific about that whole Mozart music and the whole thing about Mozart and doing the obscene lyrics that he had Mozart had actually written and, right. and, and he had this whole thing and it was the I played fiddle and cello uh, there was a cellist there and this whole thing of a woman who sang in German was trained as a worked at third band but she was trained as a, in opera and, and but the best was Trump when these guys come you know when the posse comes in and they're like you know they come to the studio and come up in a black ass SUV and, and Jack's going okay now this is Mozart's song he's got to and he's explaining it to them you know like about what we're going to do yeah and then we're going to have Jeff the Brotherhood who is standing over in the corner where they're going to go into it with this kind of this thundering rock thing and then you can rap over it and they're all like looking at him going okay okay <laughs> <laughs> and they did Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Mm. Yo, Shaggy, what you know about Mozart? Not much. 
fact, I don't know shit, Jay. I think he was deaf. Deaf as in dope? Nah, man. Deaf as in he can't hear shit. Nah, man. That was beef oven. See, what I know about Mozart is that he was a freak. Freak? What you talking about? Well, he had some underground shit people don't know nothing about. Like what? Like a song called Lick Me Arse. What does that mean? It means lick my ass, bitch. Drop that shit, Jack. been kind of divisive in the fan community for sure i think me and paul are both of the mind that we love it because you know it's different and it's quirky and it fits and we we couldn't be happier that people like you and you know jeff the brotherhood are playing on this record and it's also it must have been a big deal because it was one of the only uh blue series singles to have an actual trailer for it which is incredible great yeah and it was it was i think he you know perhaps i think jack took a kind of get that subversive kind of he enjoyed the response of just like oh this will really mess with people you <laughs> yeah. know kind of thing yeah. but we'll just rattle them off here you did the Becky and John single you did yep. Insane Clown Posse First Aid Kit Black Milk which we know is the thing that brought Daru Jones into the orbit yeah that's where I met him on that I met Daru on that sure and then that branched off I guess into the recording session that wasn't with uh, RZA <laughs> which branched off yeah. into Blunderbuss so there's a lot of yeah. connection there you had the Beck one Karen Elson stuff obviously Brittany Howard Gary yeah. Haynes Dwight Yoakam Kate Pearson so many different artists and you you really are one of the more common people on all of these different records. Just looking back, that's a diverse group of people. <laughs> you know? It is. It's very diverse. It's very, uh, I don't know, I, I just think it was it was a great time, to, you know, to, for doing that stuff. And, you know, Jack would never think twice about, you know, he'd just go... We'll get Fats in here and just yeah, bring, uh, I don't know, a steel guitar and uh, you got some, you know, other instrument and uh, have it one that goes like this and, you know, like, you know, I'll go, sure, 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 and I'll just bring a bunch of stuff and he never, he just knew whatever would probably work, so. Yeah. Is that his production style, just in the moment, on the fly instinct? Uh, yes, very, very much. He's, like, he'll have thoughts, of, but a lot of times he's fearless in that he'll come in and go like, Okay, you know what? Hey, why don't you do this? You play the and we'll plug this guitar and we'll run it through this, the blah, 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 blah. Do that. And then, you know, if you could sit there and, like, you play the organ with a bubble, and he's not, he wasn't sitting around thinking about this the night before. You know, he's just going, he's going, yeah, yeah, do that. That sounds great. Right. Or even when we were doing the album, like, I'd, I'd be here. Well, he's saying, you play this and you double this line with the blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, I don't know, man. I'm thinking to myself, this sounds. I don't know if this is going to work. It sounds kind of funky, you know? But then you hear it back later, and you go, oh, it's exactly right, right you know? Right. It so tracks with that idea of the energy from spontaneity he's always about, whether it be on the road with no set list or calling people at the last minute or anything like that. It seems there's a an overall theme with his approach to trying to capture energy and mood on a record uh, or, or oh, yeah. in a live performance. Yeah, yeah speaking absolutely. Of, speaking of record, uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier throughout those Blue Series singles, you know, sort of Blunderbuss was starting to take shape. Uh, you played 
a lot of that album. You played fiddle on 16 Saltines, mandolin <clears throat> on Hippopotamus Poor Boy, pedal steel on on and on and on. One that I wanted to ask you about was the track Blunderbuss. You played what is just the most beautiful pedal steel on that song. It's just, it's one of the highlights of that track. Oh, I, thank I, you. It stood out to me at the time and, and sticks with me today. those blunderbuss sessions and maybe particularly that song blunderbuss sometimes those songs were not like as you're hearing them they weren't in exactly that form you know meaning that sometimes there there would have been maybe not lyrics Mm -hmm. you know or we were just doing the the form of the song Mm -hmm. or sections of the song and i think the use of me playing like pedal steel and fiddle and stuff like that it's more i'm I'm pretty sure because i did play it it, it wound up being used more because it's sort of what was being there, you know, being right. used right. and stuff like that. So he would use it in, in more using the steel or other instruments, sometimes in not the way you would think of it being used, which is something that I really enjoy. I really like that. I, I love when instruments are not used in the standard context that you would imagine them to be. Right. You know? Yeah. Was it your idea to do the pedal steel on that or was it arranged that way or no i think it was more i think it was more just sort of like there were instruments set up and because i do play pedal steel we just like let's try you know that'll be good patty you know kind of electric well i mean pedal steel is an electric guitar but mm-hmm. that type of, of sound would work i mean you know and jack would know right yeah. so from there you obviously went on tour following that album we talked about that a little bit mentioned it earlier there was the guy group which is the buzzers which you were a part of and the peacocks which was the girl group uh-huh. and and that that tour was just incredible and we know there was a a lot of last minute like is this band playing is this band not playing well you know one thing when we were talking to dominic we didn't ask which it would be cool to know was how much notice were you actually given of which band was going to play and which wasn't? You would get a text day of show <laughs> before lunch. <laughs> that's it. No, that's it. Wow. It was, it was always, you know, you get a text on the day of show, and usually it's like probably before lunchtime. Wow. Whether you're playing or not. <laughs> were you ever like, damn it, I was, was going to try and chill out tonight? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, or it's more of the opposite because, right. you know, and it got into it, you know, because and then it would be generally it was alternating. But a lot of times it was um, but you couldn't if, you, if it was alternating, then everybody would know well then it's alternating. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there were times when it would be, you know, it'd be like the girls. Then the girls, right. then the guys, right. then the girls, you know, and then right. reversed, you know. So there was always like, a, you know, I mean, competitiveness within, you know, about the two bands were very different, you know, in a lot of ways.
this to most places because uh, he was uh, not only was he a great fiddle player on tour with many bands, but he was also a, uh, uh, a personal assistant for Richard Nixon for many years. I know Paul had seen you in uh, in New York at Roseland during that tour, and it was the girls first, and then you guys were already set up on the side to do the guy band as the encore. Yeah. So it seems like they did mix that in a little bit too. Or you guys mixed it in? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was not like there was a cadence. There was about two or three times where we did a transition where girls would filter off and the guys would filter on, or vice versa, to change over while we're doing something on stage. But it only happened two or three times. That thing at Roseland, which you just mentioned, mm-hmm. yeah, because you're talking about spontaneous. That was one of the boat we walked into Roseland and we're in the Jack's looking it over and they had of course the crews in there they set up on the stage and then the side stage which was the original stage where the bands would play the Roseland uh-huh. was there and Jack's like looking at it and he goes he walks up to it he looks at it and he's walking and he goes okay you know what I want to do <laughs> <laughs> I don't let the guys who appear and he did and he and it was completely off the cup the crew was going uh Okay, you know, and they had to run an entire system to do that. I would just like to say I was all the way on the side for that show. And when the curtain opened and I was front row for for that set, that was the single most thrilling concert experience of my entire life. Uh, and it was because it was just it wasn't just like I've been front row before, but it was it was like I had already resigned myself like, oh, I'm not going to get close like it sucks, but whatever, it's fine. And then it happened. So thank you for that. And uh, if, if you ever have the opportunity over brunch or whatever the f- Jack eats, just <laughs> please, <laughs> please tell him thank you. That made, that was the biggest concert experience of my entire life. It was amazing. Yeah, I will. And it, well, I'll tell him because it was, that was totally like on walking into the place to do, you know, setting up for sound check yeah. that he yeah. decided to do that. That We talked about spontaneity earlier. That's one of the ways yeah. he, he's a kind of artist that's keeping music really interesting and not canned spams. Just something really energetic and beautiful about that approach, uh, which I know James and I are, that's one, you know, one of the reasons why we're such big Third Man fans is for that reason. I will say this, it's that it's that Jack, all through, and he still does, continues to, and I said this before, in Don Quixote-like fashion, <laughs> he tries to make stuff that is mysterious and interesting and secret when in a world where it's basically impossible to do so. The song Lazaretto, Dominic told us, was a uh, was more of an instrumental for a little while. Your fiddle solo on that is just absolutely awesome. What, what was it like in, in that session when you got to rock that sick fiddle solo? As I recall, it was because at the end, so I'm running it through the fiddle, like through a big amplifier with, a, I think, like an octave divider or something on the point. Because there weren't lyrics at that point. Because at the end, let's do just do this fiddle, just do this insane fiddle thing out. So. I go, okay, and I think it was one take, like I so I did it and so Jack goes, That's great. He goes, Okay, now double it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I tried 
like a numerous times to double, but but it was so you know completely off the cuff that you, there's spaces where it's like the two nights kind of go in different directions and stuff <laughs> like that. So it's actually two fiddles doing it. The second one trying to play what the first one did. Okay, it sounds a little like a fiddle duel when you're listening to it. I always thought before we actually got the liner notes that it was maybe you and Lily having some weird fiddle off or something. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's me playing both fiddles and and me trying to double the original first fiddle coming real close but there's certain notes that don't but you know he went no that's fine Dominic had said that uh, in times of great strife or in times of great luxury, you have a catchphrase. And I think it's very apt in the luxurious sense. We can't put a price on this lifestyle. Yes, right. Yes. <laughs> I, that's, that's what, what you say, say when you're, you're, you're dragging, dragging and quipping up two flights of stairs. You can't I'd like to welcome our first guest today. Uh, we have Mr. Paul Verhaeg. How are you? Welcome to the show. Very good, thank you. Well, I'm on the hot side here in Idaho. <laughs> so we brought you here to talk a little bit about the Icarus Project and near space and space probes and really exciting stuff like that. Uh, we hear that you know a lot about it. <laughs> I, you know, I teach some of it, but also I've launched 172 high-altitude weather balloons into near space. So... A little wow. bit of a background. Wow. My goodness. So what, what exactly is near space? It's it's not necessarily space, obviously. So I, I hear it's like a, it it's like ninety nine percent of the atmosphere is, is already passed and you have about one percent left. Is that is there anything to that? That's true. Um, so near space is between controlled airspace, which is sixty thousand feet, and the boundary of space, which is three hundred and twenty eight thousand feet. So anything in between is near space. Weather balloons get mm-hmm. to about uh, 90 to 110,000 feet. So, say 100,000 feet, give or take. And at that altitude, 99% of the atmosphere is below you. And it's uh, 99% vacuum. Only 1% of the atmospheric pressure around you that you would have at sea level. So, what, what part of the atmosphere would that be in? Yeah, that puts you in the middle of the stratosphere. Okay. So, the lowest level of the stratosphere, that's where we live in, that's where our weather is at. And then the layer above that's the stratosphere, and we're halfway through the stratosphere. I'm assuming it's an important part of study for places like NASA and that that sort of thing. You know, what's what sort of benefits do we get from from studying this area of space? Sure. So one thing is it's the, uh, the location of the ozone layer. So you can go up there and measure the ozone layer, and that's what's protecting us from ultraviolet radiation from the sun, prevents skin cancers and the uh, destruction of life on Earth by blocking the, that ultra, the ultraviolet from the sun. It's really critical for that. But NASA has a facility called the Columbia Scientific Balloon Facility in Palestine, Texas. And it's on the eastern half of Texas. And before they do rocket launches or satellite launches with payloads on rocket launches that are like $60 million or $120 million, they'll send these experiments up in a weather balloon and let them stay there for hours or even days and give them exposure for kind of this taste of test or this taste of space to see how well they're going to work. Interesting. So it's a good 
testing for in space. That's a location of the ozone layer. Um, so that's very important for those reasons too. But also at that altitude, the horizon is 400 miles away. So you could do communications, line of sight communications, and reach places 400 miles away. Wow. I had also read online that it's optimal in the study of dark matter and black holes and things like that. Is there any truth to that, or or is that just correlation not being causation? (laughs) So the the one thing is that you're able to do experiments there that you can't do on the surface of the Earth. The atmosphere blocks a lot of radiation from space. Uh So if you can actually perform these experiments in near space, you can actually see and detect objects that you can detect from space, but it doesn't cost you as much. Oh, okay, cool. Things like telescopes could be sent up there, and that does allow you to study things like uh, black holes. But you can do it in space, but you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars to do it in space. Of course, you get a longer exposure time, which is also important. But it's a way to test experiments, and you can actually do some of that science. You know, another, another issue is you can sample cosmic rays. And cosmic rays are blocked by the atmosphere, so we don't see them on the surface of the Earth. We see as a secondary cosmic rays from space. Uh-huh. Those cosmic rays come from black holes and uh, other galaxies, uh, supernova explosions, things like that. And that's a way to actually, if you actually measure those cosmic rays, you can actually count and detect atoms from other stars or even other galaxies. Interesting. So what is our chances of becoming the Fantastic Four? <laughs> so um, the chances are you'll die from acute radiation poisoning first. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of pop culture, because that's where we are in or- what we are in orbit of, what is the area? Is, is near space the area this, of space that Hollywood uses to achieve zero G sometimes? I know they fly planes pretty high up, and there's something about the curvature that they use. Is that near space, or is that below that? That's still below near space. They're flying okay. in the troposphere. Yeah, they typically fly around thirty to 40,000 feet, uh-huh. which is you know half as high as we get on the weather balloons. Gotcha. Okay. And with the plane, you can get two or three minutes of weightlessness on those parabolic arcs that they fly. Wow. So they only get a most of the way to your space, but they're still within the atmosphere. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, that's cool. It's, it gives you a sense of scale, just how high these balloons are flying up there. I mean, sort of half the distance, that seems crazy, crazy high. So that's really, really interesting. What sorts of stuff do you send up there typically? I know, obviously, you're sending up lots of instrumentation to, to collect data. And I know that on the specifically on the Icarus craft, which we'll get into in a minute, they had a thermal imaging camera, I believe. Is that correct? So you know, I started by taking things like pictures and video, just mm-hmm. to see whether weather stations, so temperature, pressure, relative humidity, uh, light sensors, optical sensors, so I can measure the intensity of sunlight in the different parts of the, the visible spectrum that we can see, plus ultraviolet and infrared. Also Geiger counters, so Geiger counters allow me to measure customers by sending those out. But the, on the imaging side, uh, near-infrared cameras and thermal-infrared cameras. Now, near-infrared camera sees just past the red, and there's something called the red edge. The red edge is where uh, chlorophyll, it's a boundary in between red and infrared, where chlorophyll reflects a lot of infrared, but no no red. Chlorophyll likes to absorb red light. So this, this region where you get really bright in the near-infrared portion of the spectrum, but you're not bright in the red portion. So you can detect uh, chlorophyll really well. So you can look down and see pictures of the ground and where they're really bright and you know that there's plants. 
And then, of course, the filter infrared lets me see the temperatures. So I can take a picture of the ground and see that a river, for instance, is warmer than the land next to it. Or cities might be warmer than the grounds next to them. Or, or farm fields are cooler than the deserts next to them. So that's something I'm, something yeah. I'm just beginning to confirm. Interesting. Huh. So uh, during the, the Icarus project, you, you met up with David Jankowski and the Satins program, which is students and teachers in near space. Uh, how did you how did you meet up with them? So just to go back to April of last year, I got a, an email message. A friend said, you want to talk to me over over the phone. He's like, just send me an email. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. I gave him a call. It was a, um, I guess, a secret mission that uh, <laughs> you had to accept it before you could get the rest of the information. Uh, but he asked if I would contact David about a special project they were running. Um, my friend thought that I could handle could handle this mission. So then I ended up calling up David, and he couldn't tell me much about it until I signed a non-disclosure agreement. Mm. Never signed those. Gotcha. <laughs> he, Jack had everybody sign NDAs. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's one experience for me before. Uh, before this, I always launched uh, experiments for people, but there's no no disclosure agreements. You, know, you just yeah. we just launch them, and you're fine. But I guess this being in the record industry, the entertainment industry, non-disclosure agreements are really important to them. Yeah, that's uh, it's all that showmanship, you know. It's that panache, you know, that <laughs> that curtain opening. Yeah, and I had a lot to learn in the process. I learned a lot about that side of the industry while yeah. I find this payload for, or at least the, the, the balloon system to clear their payload out. Now, they had the, the phonograph player record and just had already been designed by Kevin. He had done some testing. And then uh, David asked me to design the system to launch it, track it, and recover it again. So I spent the time doing that. Now, it also required that I go to the FAA. Uh, our payloads are typically 12 pounds maximum weight. And this, as you can imagine, exceeded that by a great deal. Yeah. So I had to design a system to, to launch this that I had never done before. I uh, can't have the phonograph player and then get approval from the FAA to send this payload out. Wow. Was that difficult? Did they raise an eyebrow? No, or? not really. Um, it's just uh, going through all of the interested parties and making sure that you have their agreement or their approval for it. So it's, it takes a couple of weeks to do. Uh, but you explain what you want to do and why. Uh, they're fine with it. They got to look at it, have a risk assessment, how much of a risk is there flying this payload. And they wrote it off, said, yeah, you're fine, but you're going to fly between these time, between these times. So we had to you know, follow their requirements. And we do that because we want to be good uh, neighbors in, in, in the atmosphere, right? We want to be able to share this resource with aircraft and everybody else who's flying. So we'll do our part so that we're not creating a problem for other legitimate users of the, of the airspace. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. How involved or how interested, would you say, was Third Man in the technical aspects of all of this and that side of things? Or did they kind of leave that to you know, the experts and focus on the entertainment side of it all? Or was it more of a, did you find them very curious about it? They were more interested in just the entertainment side. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they asked me to do the, the technical side of it. Uh, and they just wanted to get the record up, have it yeah. play, and put the video back again. And what it took to actually get it done, they didn't really care about. Um, I shared data with David on that kind of science data and whatnot I collected. And the interest is not that high for that aspect of the flight. The interest was primarily on sending the payload. Hmm, I see. 
did you wind up using the data for other things or was it more of like a was it did it turn out to be mutually advantageous for your own scientific curiosity you know it is i you know i had not sent up the thermal imager before so it was nice but we do that and see what would happen when we cool. the thermal imager. Um, all the data that I collect, I always put it on my website. It's freely available. Um, no, no disclosure agreements there. No disclosure agreements there. Just go to my website and look at all the data. That I, I happily share that. Mm. Do you want to give a quick plug to your website? Okay, so Nearsys, Nearsys, N-E-A-R-S-Y-S dot com. Nearsys dot com. So it's cool. short for space system. Mm-hmm. Awesome. We'll check that out. There, if you want to see it, and I go invite people to take a look and if they want to do a blue flight, I mean, I'm happy to design a blue flight for anybody else. <laughs> cool. Yeah. We'll get one up there. I have a neighbor I'm really curious about. So I might I might ask you to send a <laughs> balloon up and really just, if you could just target it over their house. Let me tell you, because I've been getting some shifty <laughs> eyes. Uh, and I'd really like to know what's happening. Well, there was one group that I did a, uh, I designed a payload for out of the UK. So out of, out of England. Yeah. And it was a, a um, jewelry box. And the jewelry box opens up automatically on Serta. So this gentleman will put uh, requests for uh, to getting free engagement requests. We'll send them up on the balloon. They'll videotape this jewelry box, which then goes up to near space to get you there. Then the jewelry box opens up, and you see the request and the ring inside. Oh, well, that's very Aww. sweet. My God. <laughs> that is uh, very targeted at people who are willing to watch it go into space on YouTube or something, too, I imagine. <laughs> it's like, honey, don't so, worry. Watch yeah. for 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what they do is they'll let the video down. Yeah. So then you, get just, okay. you just give the important part of it. Also, by the way, it's a fake name because you always have a risk of losing the payload. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want that one to wind up in some vineyard somewhere, you know, a big gold diamond ring. I had heard on the Icarus craft you had a redundancy for finding the payload too to make sure that you were able to retrieve it. That's right. So when I designed the payload, I hooked up two trackers to it. So this is what I do on all my balloon flights. There's always a chance that one of the trackers could go out. And by the way, these trackers are amateur radio. So you have to have an amateur radio license to do that. That's where the FCC falls in. But the trackers have GPS receivers, uh, TNCs, which are modems built for radios. Mm. And they mm. transmit their locations per minute. And they transmit lat long altitude. Uh, they also give you the time of day, when this, the direction they're going, the speed they're going. To so use that information to track the balloon, I always put two trackers on each of my balloons so if one goes out, the second one is there to prevent the loss of the Nice. Product. Interesting. So if you were to accidentally forget to ask the FCC for permission for these trackers, would that make you a space pirate? Because I think it might. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, uh, you don't need permission from the FCC to do this. Just follow the procedures they lay out. Okay. Now, if you didn't follow FAA procedures, then I think that would make you a new space pilot. Wow. <laughs> all right. Well, we, we all now have a new goal to aspire to. Thank you very much. <laughs> so what actually led to the, the launch location of being Marsing, Idaho? Okay, so when we're ready to do these balloon launches, we can actually predict where they're going to go based on weather and wind reports by the National Weather Service. And this data they produce about two weeks in advance, but it only gets accurate about a week before the launch. Mm. So we started looking at what the winds would do at high altitude, all the way up to 100,000 feet. 
and then use software to predict where the balloon would land, depending on where we launched it, based on those winds and the time of the day. And now the problem with Idaho is it's very mountainous. A greater percentage of the surface area in Idaho is mountainous than in Colorado, for instance. There's a lot wow. of really bad places to land in Idaho. So we looked at the winds aloft, what the predicted flight looked like, and then said, well, if we don't land someplace where we don't get the balloon back, we've got to launch from, and we can name these locations. Mm-hmm. I want to look turn out to be south of Marsing, Idaho, that we can launch from, and we know that we get the balloon to land someplace that we could retrieve it. Oh, cool. Did you guys predict that it would land in a vineyard of some variety? Didn't do that. We were predicting the deserts next to the vineyard, but the parachute was a little bit smaller than I expected, so the payload came down just a little bit faster. So we reached the kind of altitude we expected, but we came down just a little bit sooner, uh, based uh, just on the parachute being a little bit smaller. And then landed, it was perfect, we landed between the rows in the vineyard. So not a single vineyard, not a single grape was damaged on the plant. Right down the middle. <laughs> not a single <laughs> grape. That's the full quote of this interview, I think. So when, when you guys got there, was it surrounded by a lot of farmers with their hats off, scratching their heads, and phoning the local tabloids, or what, what happened there? Well, what was interesting about that landing is that there was one farm worker about uh, two or 300 feet away from it. Oh, wow. Yeah, nobody else was there. And when it landed, our last position report was about a 1,000 feet or so off the ground. We were far enough away, and this radio is line of sight. And there's hills between us and the landing site. So we knew it came down in this area, but not exactly where. Now, when I do my launches and chases, I will usually bring my wife to help me do tracking. Uh-huh. So I'm driving. She's monitoring the tracking equipment. We drive up to this work, farm worker and ask him, you know, have you seen this parachute thing coming down? He didn't, uh, but he gave us permission to sh- check the area. And I'm ready to drive out. My wife tells me to stop. She's got a position report. And it turned out to be literally 100 feet from the car. <laughs> we drove right past it, looked down the road, and there's this parachute, and there's the, the payload just waiting there. Wow. The farm workers working on equipment and did not look up at the time this thing came down. So it literally landed just a couple hundred feet away from them. Wow. It just kind of shows you that people usually don't look up. And if you look at it's a strange object in, in gold mylar, and a parachute, an antenna, parachuting down in, in your vineyard. Was that the closest call you've ever had? Or have there been any unfortunate accidents you may or may not be able to tell us about? <laughs> well, uh, uh, the closest happened in Kansas, and we landed in a tree, and it slid down the side of a tree. And then uh, we go track it, and we found out the position report kept changing. Every minute it was closer and it was a road. It turned out it landed to the homeowner, and it missed him by about 10 feet or so. Whoa. Landing the tree behind him and it's kind of the audio beacon, so it's beeping. So he picked it up and he was taken to the sheriff's office. <laughs> oh, wow. man. Have you ever thought about making a, a mock-up of Superman's <laughs> payload and having that land in a field in, in Idaho? I haven't thought of that, but one thing I have done is taken a Mr. Potato Head and I put a pair of camouflage parachute on him. And we carried him up to 50,000 feet, and we let him parachute over Kansas, to skydive into Kansas. Just for giggles? What did you do that one for? <laughs> that one was actually found by a farmer, and he turned it over to the local sheriff's office. Phone number was on the potato head. So the sheriff called me or emailed me and asked what was going on. I explained that this was uh, a stunt we did. Uh, so they returned the face and gave me a picture of Mr. Potato Head getting his breathalyzer test, getting his mug ah. shot. <laughs> they charged him with trespass. I love everything about what you just said. All of that is amazing to me. You could have just blamed it on Disney, said it was viral marketing for the new Toy Story film. It yeah, would have been fine. <laughs> there you go. Um, I like 
do is send up a, a bag of potato chips. And if you've ever gone into the mountains for potato yeah, chips, you yeah. know the bag and it's because yeah. it the air pressure around it drops and your bag is sealed. Yeah. So we strip the top seal so it can't burst on the top of the bottom one breaks at about 16,000 feet. So we'll rain potato chips below us. And I call that an Idaho cluster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. We approve yeah. of this. So real quick, I only have a couple more questions. Before you launched the probe, I had heard that it needed to be perfect conditions, weather and approvals and permissions and all that. Was was there like a scramble, like a mad scramble to, to get it out that morning on July 2nd? So the only scramble really was getting the uh, capsule finished up. They showed up on Thursday and had to finish up the outer structure of the Honegaff player. So they got that done on Friday night. So David can tell you more about that. It was a late Friday night for them. But then we showed up on Saturday morning. You had the plan laid out. We followed the procedures, started in plenty of time, and got the balloon launched from when we were supposed to. Oh, cool. Oh, great. Do you think Third Man was satisfied with the launch? Do you think, were they were they happy about how it all went through? Do you think they, they, they walked away happy customers? <laughs> I get the question to a happy customer. You know, they, they got it up to the altitudes they wanted. They got the video they wanted. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they got it recovered the they wanted to. And they only had to launch it once. It didn't cost them that much money. So I, I think they were happy, happy clients. Cool, cool. That's good. Welcome our third man for this week, Rob Jones. Rob, we're thrilled to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. How's it going over there? It's hot. It's hot. And <laughs> you can't run the AC too much, otherwise, it's, uh, I'm telling you, I'm just, it's just been grueling ever since I've been back from uh, San Diego, so I'm just trying to do a lot of catch-up. So it's just yeah. been sweating up here eating pizza, drinking coffee. <laughs> That's the, the way to uh, go. The coolest of all beverages. Anyway, great on the lights. Uh, <laughs> approach. Uh, I did a lot more of that Tim and uh, Dorothy stuff at the time. That actually came out from reading an interview a while back where uh, someone mentioned that Jack did the Lollipop Guild song on stage. I can't remember what show it was. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah. Wow. I was yeah. like, oh, you know what? Detroit's, uh, it's like the Tin Man. Tin Man represents, uh, you know, industrial workers. So uh, this is like a perfect symbol for uh, White Stripes in Detroit. Great. And <laughs> I did that poster. And then uh, it resonated really well, so I just thought it would be fun to apply that to uh, like a travelogue of sorts through Canada. Because that was the, I think that was the really interesting thing. It was that they made sure to visit every part of Canada. Yeah. And just celebrating every, and making sure then in the uh, packaging that you indeed do celebrate every part of Canada. I want to show some highlight from every province, every territory, and you'll give it a little spotlight. Yeah, and the Tin Man carries on into the other series as well, like uh, Amazonian Lights. The uh, box set comes with some prints of yours that had the Tin Man in Brazil, in the heart of the Amazon and stuff. I love that imagery. And then even he even uses it in his solo career. So you really found a very good, iconic image for Jack White as a songwriter to be able to use in his assorted projects. I, I can almost guarantee you that was probably already his like, favorite. I hear a beat. How sweet just to register emotion, jealousy, devotion, and really feel the part. I could stay young and chipper, and I'd lock it with a zipper. 
If I only had a heart Nominated art directors are Tom Lunt, Rob Severe, and Ken Shipley, Jeff Anderson and Vaughn Oliver, Daniel Rice and Klaus Wurman, King Yang Xiao, Rob Jones and Jack White III. And another very official looking envelope here. And the Grammy goes to Rob Jones and Jack White III for Under Great White Northern Lights. I won. That is awesome. Uh, it's an honor being out there with Juan Oliver. Wow. Uh, I'd like to thank White Stripes and everyone else who helped me out. Mom, Dad, Captain Sensible, and, and God. There you go. Dude, I don't know. We've had, it's been like a lot of weird, weird coincidences sometimes. Um, things that uh, I think that's why uh, he's hired me for so long. I just happened to like strike on stuff that he's already like you know into or familiar with. I remember a long time ago I did a uh, tour pass that had the uh, reliquary of Saint Valentine had uh, some of his uh, finger bones in there, mm. and uh, the tour manager uh, that I was uh, working through at the time said, "Yeah, showed this to Jack. He re- immediately recognized it." And I was like, "Oh, great!" And he was like, "He was surprised he knew what it was." I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> I'm into Saints Bones, man. <laughs> so how does that work? Does he send you an email or, or call you up and say, hey, I've got this project coming up, and do you get an advanced listen and then get inspired by the work? Or does he come to you with an idea and say, hey, do you have some sketches? Could you flesh this out? How does that? How does the initiation of the project usually begin with him? For what? For albums? I mean, for any project, does he come to you first and say, hey, um, here's this thing? Or here's this gig, you know, like, how does that work? Well, it's, it changes from project to project. Uh, say, for an LP or something, uh, yeah, I've got... Uh, it's, it's basically me trying to adapt uh, for the booklet or something. But uh, for the, like, covers and stuff, Jack's already figured everything out he wants to do. Like, so Frankie Thump, he's like, hey, pearly suits, like, all that kind of stuff. I had no idea. They just give me a selection of photographs and say, hey, make this look good as a cover. And that's what I did for like Icky Thump. And then for the interiors, then I would go through and pitch uh, different ideas for 
for background images and a lot of that was of course culled from uh, lyrics or uh, how the songs sound to me advanced listen then i guess uh for, Icky, for not sometimes not for the whole album no i think for icky i only got to hear a few other tracks but i did get to hear that but i got all the lyrics ahead of time and uh oh, okay for icky it was um i used uh images of uh of grapes i just watched a documentary on cesar chavez and it was a scene of uh ronald reagan giving a press conference when he was uh, governor of california and uh cesar uh-huh. was leading a you know strike and Reagan's just eating all these grapes during the press conference. <laughs> it was such a jerk move. <laughs> uh, it stuck with me. It's like a weird power play or something. Like It's like Captain Kirk eating the apple in Wrath of Khan or something. I don't know. <laughs> weird. But I'll, I'll pitch things. Uh, Jack will go, hey, this 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 not so much this, or hey, that's great. Or, yeah, he'll pitch, say, hey, maybe uh, try something like this. So, yeah, it's never really the same. I'll say it's been... As the jobs progressed, it got a lot less required back and forth as we learned, uh, as I learned, uh, you know, kind of stuff that he was into more. It seems like you guys have uh, have a rapport or must have. I mean, you've described a little bit of your commonalities, but there must be an element of rapport there for you to to have worked together for so long. I mean, it's been a, over a decade now and the work just continues to be awesome and it, it actually continues to sort of build on itself. So it, it's interesting seeing your relationship develop in that way. I was curious about this rapport in general, because Jack does tell a story about how Machine Gun Silhouette came to be. Uh, this next song I want to play for you, I haven't played too many times since I wrote it. And the reason I wrote it was as an artist in Texas uh, that I've been working with for a long time, whose name is Rob Jones, and he's done a lot of uh, artwork over the years uh, for me. And I, I asked him, can you uh, uh, think of something with this idea, some uh, dead crows, or if I say you know, there's a field of uh, a grass that's six feet tall, and uh, I want, you know, a philosopher to walk through it and, and uh, come across a, a chicken coop inside, and then what's he going to discover inside, but there's yet another carnival even bigger than his own brain. Can you come up with that? <laughs> And he reads my mind, he does it before I even know it. So one time he wrote me a letter and um, enough time had passed that um, I hadn't really uh, given a tribute to him um, uh, except for to say thank you whenever I could. So the biggest way I could say thank you was to write a song for him. And I knew that his, um, uh, his favorite, I think his favorite album is uh, the band The Damned, their second album called Machine Gun. Etiquette. So uh, I wrote this song called Machine Gun Silhouette for him as a thank you. And these are con- all the lyrics of this song are all sentences from uh, the letter that he wrote to me. From what it sounds like, that seemed like a uh, an email that you had sent to him. But from what it sounds like from you, it seems like that is not a daily occurrence or something. It's not like your pen pals. So what actually led to Machine Gun Silhouette's 
inception what led to that email what's your side of the story oh uh <laughs> it's pretty much what's in the email there was this uh taxidermy auction that happens in dallas twice a year uh near where i live in austin texas taxidermy and uh okay. i uh saw this luchestic uh, peacock uh, it just means it's not quite an albino like you know you see a white horse that's got black eyes and a black muzzle but the rest of its body is completely white that would be luchestic as versus pure albino which is no pigment at all huh and uh i was like oh hey uh i actually no i take it back i knew i knew he was probably looking for a white peacock from uh one of his managers and i thought that would be something he'd be interested in so i sent him a link to it and then we uh, talked back and forth about that and then he answered one of my i can't remember what the question was in the email i asked him something Mm-hmm. And his reply was, hey, I had a shorter song from that last email. Check it out. And he sent me like a small snippet. <laughs> he still didn't answer the question. That's awesome. He still didn't answer the question. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's okay. That's awesome. But uh, yeah, do, uh, sh- do you want me to uh, give you the contact info for this guy or what? <laughs> I wore a shirt one day with a machine gun silhouette sporting the rainbow clip. Had this gun guy staring at me, wondering where I got it, and he just about flipped over it. I don't know his name, yeah, but just the same, he buys a literal mountain of death. And I lost five or six bidding wars against him, yeah, until I had no money left. I said, until I had no money left. Yeah, until I had no money left. Disappointed if the feathers are broken and dead The birds look good in person But not in the bubbles And supervisors are not there I've seen the auctioneer Getting pretty frustrated If something good gets some repaired When I went down there I got pretty damn suspicious But it seems like a pretty good kid do you still own the machine gun silhouette with rainbow clip shirt? Yeah, you can get it. Uh, it's uh, Dan Styles uh, made it. Dan Styles, there we have it. Yeah, he's a gig poster artist. Uh, a bad thing happened. Uh, he got a huge uptick in orders on that shirt because I posted a link about it, and I was like, "Yes, yeah, this is the guy right here. That's the fella made the shirt." <laughs> and some other folks started just making ripoff shirts of the same idea. And he actually <sighs> trademarked and like sued these people and won. But it cost him all the money he had made from the uptick in sales on the uh, Michigan Silhouette shirt. So it was a it was a bit, uh-huh. it was a bit of a pyrrhic victory. But uh, yeah, I think it's still still available from his site. Also, he has stickers as well. Going there now. <laughs> wow. And other stuff besides uh, besides machine guns with uh, rainbow uh, rainbow clips. Lots of great stuff on danstyles.com. Yeah, oh, man. Uh, that encapsulates everything that's sort of like frustrating about the art world right there in that one thing. You're trying to do something nice and then other people want to come by and rip it off. But that song is really awesome. And I think that was one of the more interesting stories that he told under that Live in Alaska show. And it just it built up the myth around you, you know, because that around me, the the uh, the lyrics to that are so poetic in a way. Yeah, a little bit, you know. I, yeah, they're poetic. They're poetic as Jack wrote them. You know, that, that's not every, that's not an everyday email, you know. <laughs> Uh, that's just me talking weird. <laughs> no, it's it's a good story though. That, I thought that built it, it, no, but yeah, but builds up the myth of uh, Jack. I'd say because he he took this lousy email and made a song about it. I mean, it's 
Not everybody can do. I mean, you've heard like that. Uh, oh, what's that song? Brian Wilson uh, song about it's like directions to how to get to his house. <laughs> no. Okay, it doesn't work. Is it a Beach Boys song or is it a Brian Wilson song? Uh, I believe it's a Beach Boys song. But I can't remember. My buddy played it for me one time. He's like, "Listen to this terrible thing," and I was like, "Ugh." <laughs> it's akin to that Johnny Carson show um, song he has. Ugh. Oh, it's Busy oh. Doing Nothing. Do they name of it? I think so. Take all the time you need. It's a lovely night. If you decide to come, you're gonna do it right. Drive for a couple miles. You see a sign and turn left for a couple blocks. Next is mine. You'll turn left on a little road. It's a bumpy one. You'll see a white fence. Move the gate and drive through. On the left side Come right in and you'll find me In my house somewhere Keep them busy while I wait I get a lot of Yeah, he gives directions to his Bel Air house the, the point is, I would say I would, I'd be willing to bet Jack could turn out could, could crank out a decent tune About directions to a Safeway <laughs> or a piggly wiggly, whatever you got in your neck of the woods. <laughs> so yeah, that's no. He's a he's a talented motherfucker. Now we for a split second, did it cross your mind? Maybe he owes me for this. <laughs> my, what do you mean? My intellectual problem. I know. I I, own, I yeah. He gave me, dude. Yeah, he was quite generous. He gave me like a freaking half the uh, lyric writing credit. Oh shit! All right. I get like Whoa. I get royalty checks off that. <laughs> so play it on Spotify every moment you can. Hell yeah! I'll, I'll... You might help Bobby J wow. buy a pack of cigarettes. Uh, That's public record. It's on the back of the uh, record. It says uh, I. It was weird. I got uh, contacted by his manager saying, uh, "Hey, Jack uh, is giving you uh, half the the uh, lyrics uh, credit," and I was like, "Wow, really? Okay, I'll take awesome. that." Awesome. And she's like, uh, you, need, you need to pick out a publishing name. I was like, really? Oh, let, me, let me give this some thought, because last time I tried this, I wound up with AnimalRummy.com. Terrible name. So uh, I, good Lord, I spent like two days. And my big problem is, is I, just got, I got a bad bug of just like, let me show you uh, how clever I am with uh, a reference that nobody gets. And, uh, oh, it was bad. And even when I landed on, it's still just terrible. I went through this whole like list with my wife. Uh, she checked everything off, except for maybe six or seven things. I tried that out with uh, Tiff, uh, who was Jack's manager at the time, and I'm still very good friends with her. And I was like, Tiff, what do you, this, what do you think about that? She's like, I, they're, they're all bad, man. I don't know. <laughs> so finally I just gave up, and I called it... Uh, <laughs> Just to show you how bad those were, this is what I, this is what we all agreed on. I landed on Incatatus music. Incatatus is the name of uh, Caligula's favorite horse that uh, he uh, made was uh, going to make into a senator. Well, that's a deep cut. <laughs> Not if you're a Caligula fan. That's like yeah. a that's, that's name number one, dude. I'm more of a uh, Incatatus wrote. Uh, I, I was more of a Caesar fan personally, but Caligula's <laughs> Caesar's got crap stories. Uh, that's true. Caligula. That's where it's at. Uh, but no, uh, Ikatana's race for the uh, Leek Green uh, faction uh, in the uh, in the circus. 
Do you ever find yourself like writing particularly kooky emails after that in the in the off chance Jack would pick another one of those? That's people? very interesting you say that. Uh, I tried my emails were pretty ordered after that because I was I was very I'm very I'm I'm always very very leery of of giving off the wrong appearance. So I was like I don't want them thinking I'm like trying to like you know do some singing telegram numbers around them every sure. time I like, write an email. <laughs> so, yeah, I tried to uh, remove a lot of my uh, usual uh, idiom away. Wow. For a you, while. You downplayed the wit. Did I engage in goofy metaphors? I just didn't engage in metaphors as much. I mean, if you make enough Caligula references, I guarantee you he will make a song about it. He's that kind of guy. to our third band for this week, Bruce Brand. Bruce, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you here. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm sure it'll be marvelous. How's it going? Now, you're over on another continent entirely, which is not our first time having somebody from a different country, but uh, it's good to have you here, and I'm glad that we're finally able to get this together. Yeah, well done. (laughs) So Holly uh, very notably uh, sang... um, uh, a duet with Jack White or a, a sort of call and response style yeah. duet on their album Elephant and uh-huh. uh, so uh, my my next question is uh, how did the Holly Go Lightly Toe Rag Studios how did all of that culminate in you participating in, uh-huh. in Jack White's music? Okay um, first got to know Jack I got a call off their agent one day he happened to be Holly's agent and used to book us gigs over there um, oh. He said, "I knew the White Stripes because we, the the gig, the tour we did previously, we stayed at Long on John's house, who released their original yeah. records. Oh wow! Yeah. And the sympathy uh, guy, yeah, yeah, sympathy, yeah. We, uh, Johnny, the bass player, the head coach, and himself stayed at his place. And he said, hey, you might like these guys.' And I slung some White Stripes <laughs> records. Okay, and I got on home. And I thought, oh, these are quite good." They're not bad. Is long gone? Is long gone as eccentric as I've been led to believe by the documentary about him? He might be. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. It sorry. Fair enough. Speak no evil. It's fine. Yeah. I thought that's obvious. Anyway, so I'd heard about them and I liked them, and I thought, "Cool, it'd be great to get them, to get them over." And then got a call off the agent saying, "Hey, the White Stripes are coming to the UK. Uh, do you guys want to yeah. open for them?" I went, "Okay." I said, "Great. Can they use your drums?" I thought, uh, "Yeah." And your amps? I thought, "Okay." And uh, can you drive them around? <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so on the day they arrived, I got a call saying, "Can I meet them at the airport?" Thought, oh, okay. So I had to leave work. <laughs> Hire a van. Actually, I didn't. I went down on the train because I'm not driving to Gatwick. It takes ages. Anyway, I still met them. They, we, the Sonics opened for them on their first four tours in Britain, and then they went off to Ireland. Um, then uh, they suddenly became household names over here, and uh, they came back the next year. And I said, was it the first tour? Yeah, they had a day off, and they were doing all these um, interviews with people, and they said, ah, oh, we've got Friday off, but we've got to do an interview with some lifestyle mag I said ah you don't want to do that come on I'll show you to my mate's studio Toe Rag they knew of it in advance they knew of it anyway because the henchmen their mates had recorded there I think so I took them to Toe Rag and they were impressed with what they saw and they met Liam Watson and so on 
and then we spent the rest yeah. of the day driving around trying to find somewhere that sold pizza. And <laughs> 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 Hackney, <laughs> where Tow Rag is located. Now, now is, this is in the this is in the dead of winter, right? This at this point in time. Um, you know what? I can't remember. I've got it written down somewhere. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, I just I, I've, heard, I've heard him talk about how cold it was during that that period. Oh yeah, oh, didn't they, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you're a bunch of wusses. It's always cold for you. <laughs> you think this is cold and it's blazing sunshine. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, they had something to do with chicken nuggets in the end. Uh, and then they came back <laughs> the next time. And Jack was staying in a hotel opposite where I live. And he rang me up and said, hey, I've written this song. It's going to be great. I want Holly to sing it. I said, okay. So he ran over and sang it at me. I thought, <laughs> sang it at you. <laughs> and I just stared at him. And he said, "What's up? Don't you like it?" <laughs> I went, "Well, I heard you write best." <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, they went and recorded it. <laughs> what is my opinion, man? <laughs> uh, yeah, we went into Torag, uh, like had a free evening over there, and they, we went up there and recorded it as like a test, a demonstration or trial of the studio and um, I ended up making tea on it (laughs) at the end of it yeah as it documented we we heard I mean that's where we 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 heard your name I mean we knew that song because that album was a tremendous hit over here and all over the world but that's really the thing that put Jack solidified Jack for us as like a a, a musician we were really really into uh, and so I listened we both listened to that album a lot well it's true that we love one another I love Jack White like a little brother well Holly I love you too but there's just so much that I don't know about you Jack give me some money to pay my bill all the dough I give you Holly you've been using on pain your phone number written in the back of my Bible. Jack, I think you're pulling my leg, and I think maybe I better ask Meg. Meg, do you think Jack really loves me? You know I don't care, cause Jack really bugs me. Why don't you ask him now? Well, I would, but Meg, I really just don't know how. Just say and we all i always heard at the end of that song cup of tea then bruce let's celebrate yeah, and i was yeah. like who the fuck is bruce i have no idea who this guy is guilty as charged i'll make a mean cup <laughs> and of tea I've wondered, i wondered that for years and years and it's you bruce you're yeah, the yeah. bruce this is amazing if i was there i'd put the kettle on for you <laughs> what was the type of tea? Can I ask? Oh, it was regular monkey tea. <laughs> was it English breakfast? Yeah, over here, tea's advertised <laughs> by monkeys, or it used to be. If it's any good, it is. And um, it was, yeah, regular PG tips, probably. Or well, it might be in Yorkshire, I don't know. Just ordinary black tea. Oh, man. Milk and a couple of sugar thrown in, forgive me. <laughs> Still. When did you find out that you got the little shout out on the end there? When did you did you find that out when you heard the album or when? No, I found out at the time because I was there when <laughs> when, it, when it was recorded. I think I might have even done some finger pops or hand claps on it or something, but I just forgot to credit myself. <laughs> uh, and then I just said, "Oh, that was on the end." And um, 
jolly good, Bruce. Have a nice cup of tea then. He said, oh yeah, leave that on. Okay. Right. <laughs> wow. So that yeah, I knew, wild. I kind of knew it was going to be there when it was at that time. Anyway, I thought I didn't, well, if they, they might fade it out or edit it off when it's mastered, but no, it stayed there. That's my wow. probably, that, wow. that's probably my main claim to fame. That's as famous as I'll ever be without anyone actually knowing who I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's, I mean, that is definitely a verbal shout out there, but you also <laughs> did so much more that, that so people who may, may not even necessarily know you would know Art Hole and would know the album art you designed. So you worked on the, you're credited as layout for the Elephant LP. Um, how did, how did you transition from musical acquaintance and uh, a person who was playing with Jag opening for him, that kind of thing? How did you transition that to doing the LP art? Did Jack, did you, were you showing him your stuff and he responded to it or? I think the idea was for the whole Elephant project, it was, it was going to be the English LP. So it was recorded in England right. with um, English engineers, well, Liam, um, and Holly singing on it, who's also English. Uh, and then right. the idea was for me to do the artwork because I'm English too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was supplied with the pictures, with the artwork, the, um, the photographs. Um, yeah. So as far as the, the actual cover design goes, that was already Jack did that and there were like okay. three I think it was six different pictures there was one yeah for the British LP one for the CD and a different one for the American LP and a different one for the CD and there was I think there was eight there was the Australian version and mm-hmm. Japanese one I think so they're all slightly different they've all been colour shifted so one they're wearing red and white one they're wearing white and red one they're wearing black and white and the other one they're I don't know I can't remember they're different he knocks <laughs> about it's the same it's not the same photo but it's the same shoot and they're slightly different pictures and they've he's, he's shifted the, the cricket bat moves around too yeah they'll, they're slightly different they're posed, posed differently so I did all the different artworks I've only got the British one I think mm-hmm. uh, the actual physically, uh, but I've got the yeah. obviously I've got the artwork for all the others because I I laid it all out. Yeah, and he supplied all the pictures and the and the text, and I, I think I did, I think I did a couple of singles before that. I can't remember which. Did you do the actual single illustration, or did you uh, just do layout? Uh, some of my design, Seven mm-hmm. Nation Army, uh, was based on a Dave right. Clark Five EP. <laughs> Well, in as much as it's got the writing going around in a circle, that was the inspiration. Right. single by the way was the first uh, white stripe single that i ever purchased and i purchased it in rome italy for an airplane ride just going back to the states so, so sorry, i purchased it to listen to something uh the seven nation army single oh, right, so okay. that album artwork is uh kind of for that single specifically is ingrained in my head oh, okay. for all eternity <laughs> well, before that, so th- thank you for that oh well you're <laughs> welcome there's dead leaves in the dirty ground was one with a, the piano girl playing a piano mm-hmm. And I think there were right. like three or four different versions of it, and each one the piano's sort of falling because that was from the lyric, obviously, mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, there's one with the piano at the top, one in the middle, one at the bottom. It's for, you know, if you're an avid collector, you'll have all of them, I suppose, but <laughs> you'll just have one. Um, there was one, actually, my favourite one was the hardest button to button which is based on the Man yeah. with the Golden Arm. There's a story behind that. Yeah, hey, I was curious about that one because I know there's some Saul Bass uh, inspiration going on. Yeah, it's obviously based on um, Saul Bass image from the Man with the Golden Arm, which I've recycled once mm-hmm. before. I like it so much. <laughs> that I, if you like yeah. something, it's best to copy it wholesale, rip it off completely, not just do <laughs> some sort of half-baked version of it. And the record... Oh, it's at the time, that's when Jack broke his finger. He had a car crash and he broke his finger and I use that right. as an excuse yeah. for it um, it's never probably <laughs> been explained before but that's why it's like it is it's his broken finger wow uh, see I knew he broke his finger because he, he talks in interviews about not being able to I broke his I made him break his finger specially so I could use that design <laughs> <laughs> and it's well, pushing he talks button. about not being able to make certain chords uh, an, anymore or, or, oh, or he I has to know. do them differently in some interviews and I guess that's what that <clears throat> comes from that's interesting yeah I heard, I heard he demanded to have th- three screws in it instead of just the two <laughs> that was absolutely necessary and he made the doctor put an extra screw in it so they'd have three, because oh, three's Jack. the magic number. Oh, Jack. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> three screws, three cords. Um, yeah, but that was the reason that's I used that. Um, and it's a finger pressing a button, and then I looked at it, I thought, the hardest button to button probably doesn't mean pushing a button. It probably means buttoning up a button. So I thought, I know, I'll put buttonholes in it. <laughs> so it looks like a, a button <laughs> that you sew on rather than a button you push. But I thought, well, anyway. And then um, the record company said, oh, I don't think we can use that. We'll probably get sued by the estate of Saul Bass. And I said, well, good. <laughs> it's good publicity. <laughs> and um, I went to a, a Saul Bass website, which was just a Saul Bass tribute site, and I showed them it. I, I sent it to them. I said, do you think this is a complete rip-off, or is it a tribute? They said, no, it's a tribute. And I, it's got an acknowledgement anyway. And, uh, but they made me sign a disclaimer. And they said, oh, it's not so much the image, it's the hand lettering. I thought, oh, you know, loads of people use hand lettering. And I looked online, and there's a typeface you can download called Hitchcock, which is basically based uh-huh. on Saul Bass lettering but I still jig it around with it to make it look more like the real thing and uh, I had to sign a disclaimer saying that if there was any comeback I'd accept full responsibility and have to pay vast amounts of you know, like, <laughs> fees <laughs> oh, wow. so I said yeah I'm willing to do Jeez. that because I you know I think you should be able to do stuff like that and as long as it's got the you know an acknowledgement on it fine and nothing happened okay. of course <laughs> <laughs> I think it, no one even mentioned it. In fact, you probably wouldn't have mentioned it. I had to bring it up myself. <laughs> you probably—I didn't give you a chance oh, to man. mention it. Who made sorry. you sign that? Was that was that Virgin? Because he wasn't—he had left sympathy X, by that XL, point. XL, yeah. Yeah. Oh, XL. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Was Jack meticulous about the look he wanted for the different things? I'm curious how much art direction. I know you said he was supplying assets for you, but oh, how right. much was he ever sketch things out for you? Or was it how how close was he to that side of it? Uh, he was more fussy about photos. He supplied pho- mm-hmm. he first supplied photographic stuff. I supplied mm-hmm. most of the art, art sort of art work orientated yeah. stuff. Um, he was quite hot on photo retouching. Like putting oh, really? things a certain way, because the um, that I'm what's it called, Blue Orchid, and Get Behind Me, Satan. That was yeah. like two photos 
there were two sets of photos and we had to use one I think there was a picture of Jack from one photo and a picture of Meg from the other and yeah. they obviously had to be stuck together and uh, all sort of made to look I mean it wasn't that hard because it's basically pretty much the same but there was lot, quite a lot of retouching going on with those with the uh, sort of highlighting mm-hmm. sort of, anyway and the yeah I've, I've got the originals and they're actual photographs I had to scan them and they're they're quite gr- dusty <laughs> The photos are quite grainy. And um... do you have any idea what that object that Jack is holding is, by any chance, on the cover of that? It's a pill, a big white thing. It's a pill container, apparently. I think that's what I was told. Anyway, it looks like a gourd or some <laughs> sort of instrument. I think he called it a pill box or a pill container, but I don't know. It must be a pretty big pill, horse pills or elephant pills. <laughs> or oh, no, maybe ask him. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've been trying to sleuth this out for quite some time, so yeah. we, we, we have no idea. But you worked closely with it, so I figured you might be a better source than I. Yeah, sure. I, it was. I remember him calling it a pill box or a a pill container or something but uh interesting I, yeah I never really questioned it I just thought it's a, a big white thing or it's made to look white anyway <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Get Miami State we're talking a little bit about that album so you had done obviously the stuff for Elephant and were you expecting to get a call back to work on more albums with him or was did that come as a surprise to you was your relationship such where it, it was it was not really a surprise your relationship continued uh, into that album well i never take things for granted i don't assume that things are going to last forever and when he started yeah. his own third man concern or it was yeah. there but when he started actually the, the record the production side of things um i wasn't expecting Expecting to sort of, you know, I thought it'd make more sense for him to use someone locally. Um, right. I did get a mess- an email off him quite early on asking if I would like to go over there and do the artwork uh, in, uh, I think, was it, I can't remember if it started off in Detroit or was it in Nashville? It, it's basically asked me if I'd go over there and do all their artwork and, and websites and stuff. Um, I, I kind of chickened out. <laughs> Because it had been quite a big move, <laughs> moving to America. It was yeah. a good deal, but you know, I thought um, it's probably I didn't. It didn't feel right. <laughs> I'm very flattered. Yeah. Wow. But um, basically, I don't know how to do websites. <laughs> I didn't think I could con my way into. That. I could have probably learnt to do them, but I thought, well, you know. <laughs> I That's quite an offer. I, I, it was an offer, and I was very, very grateful to him and very flattered. I maybe I just didn't have enough confidence in myself, <laughs> but it would have meant moving to America and you know working right. over there, and I, it did seem quite a big, big move. <laughs> yeah, right, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely but, is. You know, huh. I thought I'd you know, stick with being a little old art hole over here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that's nuts. Um, so <laughs> so you did the get behind me Satan stuff. Do you have any stories about developing that artwork uh, or developing that design? Was there any notable stuff that pops out at you? Uh, Jack stories you want to share with us for, for either this one or Elephant? But are, are there any? You know, Jack can be a character. We were talking about characters earlier. Yeah. Is there is there any are there any stories that pop out at you? Um, well, so which one are you talking about specifically? Uh, it could be either, but uh, get behind me Satan was. Uh, oh right, was, okay. Um, yeah. There was lots of late night phone calls <coughs> involved. Really? With um, hope you don't mind me saying this, changing the shape of his moustache and stuff like that. <laughs> 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 like, can I reverse his little uh, jazz patch beard to a triangle up the other way and stuff? I thought, okay, which is <coughs> quite. So I was like doing it while he was on the phone, and then sending him the proof, and then 
getting more instructions. Wow. <laughs> oh, no, and I had to clean his fingernails as well because he's pointy. He's got a pointy finger. And it, it, I couldn't see it, but he could see some dirt under his fingernail, and that had to go. <laughs> Are you doing this all traditionally by hand? I, I used a toothpick, yeah, to clean out his fingernail. <laughs> Online. Yeah, no, it's, when you say traditionally, I use in traditional old Photoshop, yeah. Like, um, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, I figured, but yeah. I was double-checking. That is super interesting, though. <laughs> Especially the fingernail bit. Was not expecting that. Well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that's, I don't know if, um, uh, yeah, if I fell full from grace saying that, but that's, but, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't blame him. I wouldn't want to have a dirty fingernail on the front of a record cover. <coughs> sure, yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a guy who uses image in a, in a certain way, not in a shallow way, but in a way that uh, is meant to go side by side with the music, I think. Well, exactly, he, he, yeah. He's, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, no. To be honest, I've worked with people who are, are so um, finicky and OCD or CDO, sorry, um, about things. I'm not <laughs> including Jack in that. I'm just saying I've, I'm used to it, and uh, it's, yeah. I'm, I can just work around it. It's if that's what people want, then I'm willing to give them what they try and give them what they want anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, what was Meg like? Did you have a lot of interaction with Meg? I would imagine probably not a lot over the phone or email, but no. Um, Mainly in the bars and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, she's yeah. very, very nice and very quiet. Uh, in my, um, what I'm aware of anyway, quite, quite well behaved. Yeah. Well, they're both quite well behaved. <laughs> I thought. Well, I didn't, I didn't notice anything <laughs> untoward going on. But um, yeah, no, she seemed lovely. But um, I like her drumming. I know she probably says mm-hmm. that Jack told her what to do all the time, but. You know, how to play it, basically. But what she did fitted, I thought it fitted the music perfectly. And it is kind of, um, she had her own style. And I liked, I liked what she did. I haven't seen or been in touch with her since, oof, well, last I went to America, I think, and stayed at her place, and that was nice. But, um, yeah, I don't actually know what's become of her, to be honest. Yeah, it seems to be uh, most people don't, but most people that do are kind of keeping it quiet just so she can yeah. live a quieter lifestyle, it seems. Yeah, if uh, if she's out there. Hello, Meg, Madge. Yeah, we used to, I used to call them Jeff and Madge. They're not Jack and Meg over here, they're Jeff and Madge. And, really? Uh, yeah, and they had, the, they had their third man, who was uh, John Baker, a.k.a. Mr. Pastry, who was their uh, <coughs> Kiwi to road manager at the time. <laughs> With the photos you got for the artwork, did you get those directly from Jack? or did Because I know they were from Brian Muldoon and David Swanson, I think, did a couple of them too. Uh, uh, did you have any contact with them? Or? Uh, Get Behind Me Satan and Blue Orchid were from the photographer. Ewan Spencer, I think his name was. Okay. Uh, I've still got them somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised to actually get photographs. 
mm-hmm. it made a sort of harken back to the old days I'll tell you what was a bit of a tr- bit of a problem though was on the on the British version of Elephant Jack had done the art made the colours like a rich really deep oxblood colour it looked really nice but he saved it in a RGB format which is okay for online but for print you have to change to CMYK and I changed it as soon as I changed it to CMYK it went grey <laughs> it was just on the cusp of uh, being a really difficult colour and I I tried really hard to get recapture the proper colour and it, it it just about got away with it but it's nowhere near as nice as it looks or it would have looked as a virtual picture but you know I even took it to a oh. printer and had it printed out and rescanned it and it still wouldn't capture wouldn't hold the proper colour but got there in the end I think it's printed on elephant dung <laughs> the board yeah the, actual, the, the <laughs> LP cut the sle- yeah the actual jacket was made from elephant dung I found out too late <laughs> <laughs> After already handled it and sniffed it. (laughs) Anyway. Well, I often get things from artists in RGB, and when they see print, they wonder, well, what happened? Why why does it look like that? And I say, Mm. well, you sent it to me in RGB, and the conversion is just never going to be 100% what that was. Actually, I get the opposite problem, because I post a lot of digital work, and if I'm ever posting stuff uh, with other people, occasionally they'll send me files in CMYK, which look horrendous digitally, so they're they're (laughs) fluorescent in digital, uh, at least on the internet, when they're posted. So it's, yeah, kind of the opposite problem for me, but I I always make sure all my files are CMYK if I right. can help yeah. it for print. Uh, over email, Bruce, you mentioned that Jack got you a computer? What's that yeah, about? Well, uh, when I was working on the Elephant album, I had this old steam-driven Apple Mac. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're in gray, your top hat. and Grey yeah. tower things. Yeah. Um, and he saw how long it took me just to open up the picture because it was like a real high-res file. And yeah. it'll take it like a good five minutes just to open the picture. He says, wow, looks like you can do with a new computer. I went, well, yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd get one with the proceeds. I thought, you know, in fact, I thought maybe I can get one with the proceeds of this. And <laughs> actually, yeah, we're out for, yeah, we're out at dinner. He, after some, I think we were doing some recording or something. We ran out to dinner and I told him about how slow it was taking on the computer. And he said, wow, sounds like you can use a, a new computer. Next day, or well, a couple of days later, there was a bang on the, or sort of the door went. I ran downstairs and there's a man with a huge cardboard box saying, delivery for Mr. Brand. <laughs> uh, what's that? I sign here. And I said, oh, didn't order anything. Took it up. But ah, brand new Mac G4. And woohoo! I was bouncing off the furniture. It's great. Um, and I've only, it's only a couple of years ago that I, I had to retire it and get what I'm using now, which is a, an iMac, because it was. Yeah. getting it was starting to break down i'm just imagining jack at like a genius bar at an apple store yeah <laughs> yeah no it was like yeah from the apple store and it was all like had, you know chips in it and all that and uh, a screen and <laughs> plugs and sockets and everything I thought, wow he bought yeah. he bought three of them and threw out the other two because yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, that served me served me well. I've still got it in storage, but um, yeah, it doesn't work properly now because I over, you know, I've used it to death. <laughs> right, right. To put on my my little fan hat real quick, uh, I'm just going to say, cup of tea, then, Bruce. Um, Excellent. <laughs> yeah, let's celebrate. Make it yourself. <laughs>
For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. Keeping that riffraff out. <laughs>